BritFlix.com podcast. On this podcast, rather than critique or score films out of five or ten or tell you what we love or what we hate, I sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie, what they discovered, what they learned, all those kind of things. Or I get to sit down with a horror film fan and get them to tell me five great British horror films that they think we should all take interest in. Either way, this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So, if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes. And if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Jane Giles. Hello, Jane. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Um, We've come together to talk about an Indiegogo campaign. Um... That's about a sort oh, of... Oh, we have, yes. We've come together. Although we're not in a room, obviously. We're, we're, we're over the internet, but the voices will sound together when people listen. Um, and it's about, it's, it's, it's about a, a sort of brief moment in cinema history, and, but maybe an important one for fans of what your press release describes as offbeat cinema, which I think is a lovely phrase because it, it defies genre, but it, it, it says a lot without saying too much. Yeah, sure. Um, we're here to talk about the Scala Cinema, mm-hmm. which uh, is this 2018 is a double anniversary for the Scala. It was 40 years since its first programme in 1978 mm-hmm. and 25 years since the Scala closed in King's Cross. It's um, weird, weird, that double anniversary, isn't it? I mean, it's not always the way it should be weird, but it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 1978 to 1993 um, was the Scala. Although, so I've been wanting to... Sorry, there's a cat encroaching on this interview. Okay. Um, uh, so I've been wanting to write a book about Scala ever since it closed, really, since 1993. I was programmer of the Scala mm-hmm. from 1988 to 1992. It was my first proper job in film, and it was massively influential on me. I really thought that this is what the world of work was like, that you could get your dream job. <laughs> no. I saw a little ad in The Guardian one Monday. It said, you know, Scarlet Programmer, you know, some kind of pitiful amount of money. And I applied for it and I got it. And I really thought that that's the way the world worked. I was about 23 at the time. Um, and, of course, it wasn't, you know, that didn't turn out to be the case at all. But when the Scala closed in 1993, um, for reasons that the book will explain, mm-hmm. uh, I wrote, um, I was invited by... Stephanie Voltzen, who ran a fantastic publication called uh, Shock Express. Shock Express was the book. Shock was the magazine. And he ran a film festival called Shock Around the Clock with Alan Jones from the Bright Fest. So Stefan asked me if I wanted to um, write an article for his latest Shock Shock Express. So the scholar just closed and I wrote an obituary of it, um, which turns out to be a very long, impassioned piece. But actually, I just wanted to write more and more and more about it, like over the years. And mm-hmm. then I sort of forgot about it after a while. Um, although I could never really forget about it, actually, for, for other reasons that the book goes into, which I will keep secret for the moment. Um, and um, 
<laughs> Sorry, it's early. I've kind of lost my train of thought. Well, look, let's let's. I mean, before before we go into the details about 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 writing the book and stuff, do you want to? I mean, basically, it's it's an Indiegogo campaign that started to 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 get the the book published that you've written about about this the Scarlet Cinema, and yes, it's so it's I, live as we I talk now. I'm Saturday, third of February. And it's running till the eighth yeah. of March, isn't it? It's going to be live till then. And the hope is to raise yeah. thirty thousand pounds. Yeah. Of which, while we talk here, already sixty percent. So get on this, kids, if you're uh, if you're not if you if you're interested in the book. Um, so first off, what is the, the book's going to be? Quite a delicious thing in itself, isn't it? As as, as yeah, an item. It, so I teamed up with. Um, publisher Harvey Fenton at Fab Press who got a really interesting vision for the book. Um, Mm. I thought it was a history book basically with some pictures in it. Harvey thought it was a picture book with no history in it apart from what was in the Scarlet programmes. So we sat down and figured it out and put those two ideas together and so what we've got is both. We've got a very 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 large book Um, it's probably going to be the biggest book in anybody's collection. It's tall it's wide it's 400 pages. It's got reproduction scans of every single Scala program from, like I say, 1978 to 1993. Mm-hmm. So, so it's absolutely delicious, fantastic. Harvey figured out that um, if you reduced the um, programs by a certain size, they would still be legible um, and impactful. So they're not reduced so small you can't read what was on each day, which was really what we wanted to do was for people to be able to look at the programme, see what was on, just, you know, be amazed by the diversity of what the fil- what films were showing. But also refer back to an index at the end of the book and be able to, like, if you thought, oh, you know, I'd like to find out, you know, when, I don't know, Withnell and I were showing for the first time at the Scala, mm. then you just um, refer back to... Uh, refer from the index back to the page number. So that's going to be the genius of it. For a long time, I wanted to do something like a database of every film that showed at the Scala, but I I never got that off the ground. But I did write the book. It's 100,000 words of history. I went right back to the very deepest history of the Scala. Its first site was in Fitzrovia, which is at Gooch Street Tube Station in London. and um, it was on the site of an old music hall, uh, which dated back to 1772. So that's where I started in Fitzrovia. Mm. And in King's Cross, I looked at King's Cross is actually, you know, it's got this reputation of being incredibly scuzzy, but it's actually quite a weirdly magical place with all sorts of, um, again, very, very deep history about Boudicca's last battle and, you know, the legends of St Pancras and, and, and all of this. And I got quite fascinated by why such extraordinary things happened in the Scala cinema, why it became known as this, you know, incredibly well-loved cinema. Mm. And I found all sorts of interesting things. It was a bit like being, you know, Alice in Wonderland and kind of going off, literally going off down rabbit holes. Um, so that's why I've got a very long book <laughs> for one reason. So when, when you when you started that, having, having done the, originally done the obituary when it, when it, when it sort yeah. of, originally closed and then I always had this thing percolating in your mind and then you you set off to write write the story what was was you finding out things you didn't know first and then piecing together a story or were you aware of a dotted history that you um, were having I, to fill in the blanks of yeah yeah I was aware of a dotted history um yeah. I mean obviously I, I knew a lot about what happened in my four years at uh, being the programmer of the Scala. Yeah. 
Um, and I knew roughly what happened before, but I didn't really know about the story of the other cinema, which mm. was the basis of the Scala. It was a sort of socialist collective documentary cinema, um, very right on, very left wing cinema that was set up in 1976. Mm. Um, but I found all sorts of really strange coincidences going further back from that and also sort of going forwards because the book does cover off what the Scala is now, which is a nightclub. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there's lots and lots and lots of coincidences in the book, which I've stitched together as if it was all meant to be by plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Serendipity is a narrative. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> But it's 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 in, I mean it fascinated me reading reading just even the brief notes on the on the press release that because when I, I came to London in ninety nine and having seen as a young as a youngster seeing the seeing the Scala from afar as this kind of magical place where you could see weird films is, is in terms of my my thoughts and it would have been the time you were programming would have been the time that my interest was most peaked we were kind of we were well after the the sort of video recording act, you couldn't get things that you wanted to see. And there was, I kept seeing in classified ads, you know, what was being shown at the Scar in various publications and stuff and thinking, if only I could get there. And then by the time I get to London, obviously this is, this is all part of, part of uh, London's culture, cultural history. And, and, yes. and then the very fact that it, it became a music venue and actually, it used to be a music venue before it was the Scarlet Cinema, which is that, that that's what that, that's the initial thing that sort of um, surprised me from just the, the brief readings I've done this morning. Well, yeah, I mean, it was quite short that period. Actually, it was 1972 to 1973. Mm. And basically, what, so the Scarlet was built in 1920 or just before 1920 as a picture palace, a okay. massive 1,300 seat purpose built cinema mm -hmm. um, that was really sort of, you know, there because it was the the boom years of cinema. Cinema was invented in 18, or, you know, it came, came together in 1895. Yeah. So 1920, this massive boom in, in uh, building of um, cinemas. Obviously, film was still silent at that time. So you had an orchestra accompaniment hmm. um, and you had a number of these picture palaces that were built. Uh, King's Cross was chosen as one because it was a, um, um, a terminus. You know, the, the station of King's Cross had opened in 1850 and it was very easy to get there. So you had a local audience, but you also had a national audience um, for the King's Cross cinema. So it became a Gaumont, which was the chain of cinemas, and then it became an Odeon um, by 1950-something. And, and after that, um, cinema was really in sharp decline. Um, so the owners, the, the Odeon bailed out in about 1972 or something like that, when a music management consortium of Fillmore Entertainments and Cine Centre, which was a really interesting chain of um, cinemas who built the first multiplex in Panton Street in the UK, for example. Mm. So they came together um, and they could see that the money wasn't in cinema in 1972. So they tried to turn it. Well, they had films showing in the week and then at the weekends they were showing um, uh, what they called pop concerts. Um, and some of these pop concerts are amazing. There was one week in 1972 when the mc5 played mm. uh yeah <laughs> Lou, Lou Reed and iggy pop all in one week 
and the Lou Reed, uh, if you know the cover of Transformer, yeah. um, then that photograph was taken on stage at the Scala. If you know the, which was then called King Sounds. or the <laughs> Mine's just blown then, go on. <laughs> if you know the cover of Raw Power, it yeah. that photograph was taken 24 hours later on stage at the Scala. <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> Fantastic music history that runs through the Scala. By the time the Scala was in Fitzrovia yeah. in 1978, the film producer Stephen Woolley had taken charge of it. Oh, he wasn't a producer yet. He was an usher, cinema manager. Um, and he started to put on gigs in 1980. And the, there are gigs like... Um, uh, Throbbing Gristle, Monte Cazaza, Spandau Ballet played their fourth gig at the Fitzrovian Scala. So there's lots of music history that runs right throughout, particularly around this point around 1972 with the pop concerts, particularly around 1980, 1981, with, with bands like New Order before, mm. um, before the Hacienda was set up playing at the Scala. Um, and then... Later on, um, there were lots of uh, music clubs that Scala, King's Cross became known for, and also some bands that played, and some some people like Nick Cave um, and uh, Gallon Drunk, and you know, kind of various bands like that became associated yeah, yeah. with cinema. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's when just when you start throwing these things out, you're like, it's sort of people's history, which obviously all these things are unintended consequences, aren't they? It's like just nobody had a big plan. They were just like, let's do things we like. And then when you look back. <laughs> but I think that's the way to go, isn't it? You know, yeah. if if we like it, then there'll be other people out there somewhere who'll like it. It's about sort of, yeah, like you say, joining the dots. Yes, yeah, so it is. It is. It's it's like a like the, the, the sort of mini version of if we build it, they will come. And it's almost like if we build it, they will come out of the walls and <laughs> make themselves <Yeah>. visible because <laughs> they didn't know they were looking yeah. for it. Yeah, that's right. So when you um, when, when you were writing when you were writing the book, obviously you 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 already, you already had a you had a sort of core you had a big core knowledge of of what you already knew about the place. Having obviously having the detailed knowledge of having worked there and programmed it, but also the general awareness of of what it was. But having gone gone through the process of writing it, what was what was your sort of biggest? What, what would you say was your biggest surprise lesson learned about the Scala that that you weren't aware of before you went into the the exercise of writing the book? Um, okay, so my th this may not be very surprising or shocking for anybody listening, but for me, my heart actually stopped when I read. So I, I was tipped off by my friend Danny Lee, who's um, uh, now working at the British Film Institute. He started working there um, just as I was being ejected from the organisation. Uh, I've worked for many years with the BFI and they've made me redundant twice, which is, uh, you know, the way the big organisations work. Um, but there's there's lots of points of connection between uh, the British Film Institute and the Scala. And this is quite strange for me because having worked for both um, to see how closely uh, they came together um, really kind of came to, um, a, a, you know, I want to say crisis, but it wasn't really a crisis, actually. Um, I was looking at a local newsletter of Fitzrovia, and I was looking at the, um, the redevelopment of the area by EMI, um, who at that time was knocking down great swathes of uh, the Tottenham Court Road um, at the Oxford Street end. It was called the Gort 
estate redevelopment and they basically made hundreds of people homeless they closed down lots of local businesses all with this kind of megalithic redevelopment of the area and if you go there now go to Tottenham Court Road you can sort of see traces of this all around um so at the time, this was the early 1970s, mm-hmm. at the time, um, the Scala Theatre, which was the um, original site, like I say, at Good Street, yeah. uh, that had been knocked down in 1970. It was built as a, rebuilt as a theatre in 1905 and knocked down in 1970. And there's lots of very, very amusing things that happened in that theatre um, in those, in those um, what's that sort of? Ninety-five years, uh, which you can read about. I won't blar on about them now because I'm fascinated by this, as you can tell. Um, and the um, British Film Institute, which was set up in 1933, tried to buy the site of the Scala Theatre in Good Street. Um, and and I, when I realised this, or I found this out through reading a local newsletter from the um, early 70s, yeah. I realised that if the BFI had been successful in doing this and buying this site of the Scala Theatre, there would be no Scala Cinema. Um, and at that moment, it was a bit like sliding doors or, wow. you know, I realised that where I just thought, where would I be if there was no Scala Cinema? Um, because so many of my friendships and um, actually, uh, you know, my family actually came out of the Scala Cinema. So, I had a big kind of existential crisis at that point. So that's a very personal thing. But I think that for people who are less concerned about, you know, um, your career, uh, <laughs> you know, my family, <laughs> less concerned about me and more concerned about, um, you know, the actual what went on in the Scala cinemas between yeah. 1978 and 1993. I think that they will find lots of, um, things that they'd forgotten or they never knew. Um, one of the things that's really lovely for me over the last year, few years was meeting um, people or finding out that a certain number of very famous filmmakers had been regular punters in the audience of the Scala. Mm. Um, and when I found out that Christopher Nolan still carries his last Scala membership card in his wallet, I was hugely touched and interested by why is it that people like Ben Wheatley and um, Christopher Nolan and Peter Strickland and James Marsh, these really interesting British filmmakers, why is it that they were so inspired by the Scarlet? Martin McDonough, now we've got him um, nominated, his film nominated for Oscars with three billboards, mm. and he was a Scarlet regular in fact he won one month he he won the scala caption competition he won two tickets and a t-shirt to scala you know which was lovely and now he wins academy awards well we hope he will what what in that sense then what do you remember being about about the the scala cinema community then that kept that kept sort of punters and, and, and aspiring filmmakers sort of coming back for more what i mean obviously the films are, films are one thing but there must you could see films all over london so what... yeah you could uh, um well there's a couple of things one yes you certainly could see films all over london yeah and certainly back in the 70s a lot of cinemas were showing the same kind of films but scala really endured and also it became the last cinema that was regularly uh, every week showing all-nighters and the all-nighters had a real magic to them mm. um, and, and I think that they were very impactful a lot of what people 
enduringly remember about the Scala is around the all-nighters. Um, I think, you know, the cinema, it was sort of like a clubhouse. There's a great quote from John Waters where he really sort of homes right in on this. Um, so it was like being part of a kind of big sprawling gang and, and the Scala was like the clubhouse of the gang. It was a bit scruffy and people really felt at home in there. It was friendly. It mm. was a bit scruffy. Um, it was cheap. It was good value. You could see, you know, three, four, five films for, you know, the, the most it ever got was about £4.50 for an all-nighter. Oh. Um, I know, for like five films or whatever. So it was good value. Um, people liked it. Uh, the audience was everything from, you know, people in anoreks to really dressed up new romantic people, big dressy up goths, you know, like everything in between. Um, there was very young people there who probably weren't meant to be there, but like we let them in, not just for, you know, earning a few extra quid, but because we knew that if a young person came to Scarlet, they were probably meant to be there, you know, mm. um, they had a calling. <laughs> No. I discovered now sort of you know various people who told me they were 14 years old when they first went yeah <laughs> so I mean they're going specifically into the the role you had as programming um what 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 do you remember about the remit you were given then um and and, and how and how you went about sort of fulfilling that and making it happen as it were to keep you know keep the, the sort of scarlet flag flying so um, Stephen Woolley gave me the job because I just went in and told him how much I loved uh, the how often I went to Scala and how much I loved the films that were showing and how I really knew the Palace collection. Mm -hmm. All of my favourite films were there. The films like Element of Crime and the things and Eraserhead and things that I, <clears throat> excuse me that I just adored. John Waters films, horror films. I loved horror films, but I like the classics as well, like melodrama and um, you know sort of pretty much everything in between. Uh, so he um, also had done a, um, I'd done a, some training in cinema management up at the Ipswich Film Theatre. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of came off of that training um, after several months and applied for the Scala job and got it. So what I knew that I had to do was look back at the Scala ledgers and see um, see what films did well. Really understand what the Scala programme was doing, not see it as something that was broke that needed fixing, which yeah. I think people quite often think when they get a new job, they're going, right, I'm going to kind of completely change everything. So I went in and I looked at what I thought was the best of what all of the previous programmers had been doing and just thought, how can I amplify this? How can I make it more profitable? Because the Scala always worked on a shoestring, um, which is sort of liberating but precarious at the same time. Um, it was a single screen cinema. You know, you just don't get that anymore. I think there's only one of them left in, in London at the moment or two. Um, and it wasn't part of a chain, crucially. So although the parent company of the Scala was Palace Pictures, um, the fact that it wasn't part of a chain made it both, like I say, both, both sort of, you know, gave it freedom, but made it vulnerable as well. And what do, what do you remember as being a a sort of coup for you in terms of films you managed to show and maybe ones where you felt where what you showed ended up proving itself to be a sort of head of a curve a little maybe and it ended up getting a wider viewing after the fact oh well i'd say that i mean i wasn't solely responsible for this because um somebody one of the uh horror film programmers bought it in for a horror festival but mm -hmm. that was henry 
Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, mm. which I thought was great. I thought it was like a Cassavetes film or something like that. And yeah. uh, uh, so I persuaded the producers to allow us to hang on to the print after the festival. Um, and we, we opened the film and ran it on and off for, for a couple of years. And then it got picked up for, uh, in inverted commas, proper distribution, mm. um, albeit in a cut print. So because we were a membership cinema, that meant we could show unclassified films. So actually, the, the battles that the Scala had were never with the BBFC because we would apply to the local authority, Camden Council, I would, and say, you know, can I have your permission to show XYZ films this month which do not have BBFC certificates? And they'd write back and say, yes, keep it within the 18 bracket and you can do that. So that's exactly what we did. Um, and it gave us you know again it gave us great freedom as programmers um there are other films as well like um uh, the gay film pink narcissus uh, came to us um through a, a personal relationship with um a, a programmer from the uh, lesbian and gay film festival and okay. um, um so that was a, a big hit it's an a, a, late 60s sort of American underground film which proved hugely popular with its audiences and there were other things that showed exclusively to the Scala Thundercrack is one that people really strongly associate with the Scala Cafe Flesh um, and then there are other films which uh, music films like um, Dandy which is a film with Einstein and Roy Barton and Nick Cave and Nina Hagen and various people in it yeah. uh, Richard Kern's Death Trip films. So because the Scala was associated with music, because um, it was prepared to take some risks, um, it, you know, it, it developed these kind of exclusivities. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Richard Kern Death Trip films, I only know them through the book, the, the creation pile, Death Tripping. What, what was a night of Richard Kern films like in, in, in London, obviously, because that's displaced it from its home anyway? Well, actually, it was a complete nightmare, but probably not for the reasons why you'd think. The reason <laughs> it was a nightmare was that the films were only on video. Right. Um, uh, and the Scala only showed 35mm and 16mm. It was completely pre-digital. There, no, there was no DCP. There was no mm. video projection in those days. So in order to show the Kern Death Trip films, we had to hire in some massive early days bit of video projection kit and nobody knew how to work it um, <laughs> the, the reason why you know the current the current films are full of you know kind of like you know outrageous like shocking horrifying bad taste sick wonderful stuff that we love to show at the scarlet but yeah. yeah the fact that we couldn't get the projector working was was really terrible <laughs> <laughs> So the reprobates were fine, but the technology wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And actually, what I do remember is, you know how impatient audiences are? Yeah. Um, they sat very nicely and very, you know, very sweet. There was no kind of whistling or jeering or... Like, I read a review of the Iggy Pop gig in July 1972 at King Sounds at what would become the Scala, mm. the building. And he had a lot of technical failure, actually, during that concert, apparently. Yeah. And um, the, the microphone broke down, and while they were fixing it, there was like a skinhead gang leader in the audience who came stomping to the front of the stage and started shrieking at Iggy, who 
apparently did a drop kick at the guy from across the stage and security um, bundled the poor old skinhead out onto the street before anything worse could happen. Now, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously, with a book that like you've written, we could talk about all kinds of the history of, of, uh, of the Scala forever, forever and ever, I think. But what we need to point out, given this is Indiegogo campaign, is some of the perks and what people can get to help get this book published about the Scala. So do you want to yeah. talk, talk us through? But I, say, I guess, what's the main one where people can contribute and get themselves the book, I suppose? How does that, how does that work first? Okay, so the Indiegogo, the Indiegogo is a really great platform, actually. We like it a lot. The publisher uh, ran a campaign last year to um, publish Stephen Thrower's uh, lovely new version of Beyond Terror, the films of Lucio Fulci. Mm -hmm. And it was such a successful campaign that that's why Harvey for Fab wanted to do it again this year for the Scarlet book. Um, so the basic level, so you can donate. Like at the moment, we've had. Um, uh, contributions of anything from one pound to one thousand pounds, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about that thousand pounds later. But um, the target, the target just to get the book printed is uh, thirty thousand pounds. It's a very expensive book to print mm -hmm. because size, because of the number of scans, full color scans, because of the quality of Harvey's work, it's um, it's expensive. So we need thirty thousand. It's too much risk for him him as an independent publisher to go ahead and create this book um, without having the backing of the advanced sales. So at the basic level, um, where you just get the book, mm -hmm. you know, we're calling it thrills, but no frills. Um, it's £40 for the book. That's actually a subsidised amount. Um, the higher levels of the campaign are subsidising the book going out at £40. Um, and then it jumps up in increments of there's a kind of level to £60 where you get the collector's edition. And with the collector's edition, you get a, a lovely um, black and gold cloth bound book in a slipcase. And crucially, you get your name um, as a supporter in the back of the book. So, yes. So um, there we go uh, for posterity. Um, then level three goes up to £80. And there's some kind of, you know, uh, Scala, like a badge and, um, you know, a bag and kind of, you know, bits of merch jumps up to £100. And for that, you get a bit more merch, crucially a T-shirt, Scala T-shirt for people who like T-shirts. And I autograph your book for you. Um, and then it jumps up another big jump to £150. That is a... Um, a level that's limited to 100. And the reason why that is, is because we're giving away an original edition of um, the Scala program. We've wow. got between me and the publisher, we've got some spares of the, um, the Scala programs. So we've got 100 to give away. Um, you also get a PDF of the book, which I think is a really useful thing for people who want to read it, but maybe not get the book out of its box if they're mm -hmm. kind of trying to keep it pristine you also get a lovely scala wall calendar and we've got a surprise for people that go in at 150 pounds i'm absolutely not saying what it is but it's going to be great um and keep then a surprise good idea yes the uh, <laughs> scala was always full of surprises i can tell you that um and then there's a top 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 level level six it's a philanthropic level um, when we um, started thinking about how, how we were going to fund this publication, um, someone came to me immediately and said, I'll give you a thousand quid. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Mm. If 
this woman, uh, Vic Roberts, who actually used to be an usher at the Scala, if she, if she would do that, then maybe other people would do that. So we tested it out a bit and we saw that people, um, uh, some people were willing to do that. And actually through the campaign, we've had three people take up um, yeah. uh, uh, we're calling them the angels because, you know, it's an extraordinary philanthropic gesture that one can make. And it's very sweet and very lovely. Um, and uh, yeah, so there we go. Um, anything from one pound to a thousand pounds. Thank you Brilliant. very much. Well, look, thank you very much for telling us about some of the things that are going to be in the book and about the campaign. I'll put a link to the Indiegogo page in the show notes. It's it's open now. I'm talking to you on Saturday the 3rd of February and it runs till March the 8th. And best of luck reaching the 30,000, which I think given two or three days in, you're already at 60%. I think by what I understand about how crowdfunding works, I think if you're at 60% by day, but in within the first week, you tend to, you tend to see it off. So best of luck with that. And I should also just say the book is never going to be available on Amazon and probably will never be available in bookshops. It will only be available from the publisher. And the reason for this is that we are supporting independent um, publishing. Oh, well, I, 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 given, given, given the ethos behind the scala full stop, that makes that makes a great deal of sense. Right. Well, thank look, you, no, thank you, Jane. That's been really fascinating. And, and you know, you've blown my mind a couple of times with this this is uh it's a real i mean i, I mean like i say like i said in the podcast it really is a, a a great way to focus people's history when you when you look at one specific thing and then go and then just build out from it go what happened and you go jesus christ this was really just a an ever an ever blowing bubble of of popular culture that was that was interesting on the edges and 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 it's funny now looking back because obviously it's it's the kind of things that's fully embraced and 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 very much part of the 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 the, uh, the normal lexicon of popular culture. There's nothing there's nothing odd about Lou Reed or Iggy Pop anymore, is there? No, and also actually not just so. Yeah, you're right. The Scala was a prism for popular culture, but also for political and social histories as well. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of this woven in. There's um, you know the Scala lived through the era of um, you know, the advent of AIDS, the spread of AIDS, when people thought there was no cure, no treatment for AIDS. Um, also, it lived through like the race riots. It lived through, and the, there's a moment in the book where the Scala audience come in on the day of the poll tax riots, carrying like policemen's helmets and batons, their trophies from the riots. Um, you know, there's there's the moment of the Scala campaigning against Clause 28 and Clause 25. So yeah, there's a lot of pol political and social history in there as well. Yeah, you must you must know where to draw the line in terms of what was going to get in your hundred without a thousand words. But um, yeah. <laughs> Well, there we go. Well, Hundred thousand words. That's it. Well, look. Thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Thanks again. Hope it goes well. Bye bye. Britflix.com podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you.